0: Um, but in terms of you know developing an athlete's agility performance and getting that transfer from training to competition, it doesn't really hold a space um, in that aspect.
1: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about agility and developing the perceptual cognitive factors to improve agility performance. So it's something that we haven't really discussed in loads of detail on this podcast. There's been a few, there's definitely been a few. Sean Meischke came on, had a little chat around this area as well. But it's probably an under-talked-about area. A lot about the physical qualities in developing change direction, but maybe not these perceptual cognitive factors to improve agility performance. So we've got Tanya Spiteri, who is an expert in this area, just written a book chapter for Tom DeSantos and Paul Jones's book, all about agility and change direction. So we dive into some of the detail here from... The constraints influencing an individual's agility performance to building drills from the bottom up, progressions and regressions, and understanding athletes' progress and areas of potential development when traditional testing is actually really difficult. So a really interesting episode coming with Tanya, who I'm really excited to get on and share with you. This episode of the Pacer Performance Podcast is sponsored by VALD. So I'm really proud to have VALD as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to VALD HQ in Brisbane for their annual VALDCON event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organisations so an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. So This is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about VALD. But if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at VALDperformance.com. Also, sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. So, with offices in the US, Australia, and the UK, Play provides an end to end experience by collaborating with organizations through their own proprietary formula to create a world class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm rubber and attack turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade, with the addition of the new Icon X rack range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about Play, check out their website play.us, that's P-L-A-E dot U-S. So without further ado, over to the episode with Tanya. Tanya Spiteri, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for for coming on. Anyone that doesn't know who you are, Tanya, would you mind just giving us a bit of a a background to you? And uh, then we'll dive into the chat. We're going to have around the next 45 minutes about agility, change direction, all the good stuff.
0: Yep, sure. Perfect. So... Um, I currently hold a position as a senior adjunct fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm currently contributing to the development of their master's um, of clinical exercise physiology degree. Um, So my background itself, I completed my bachelor's in exercise rehab and sports science and my master's and PhD by research in biomechanics at Edith Cowan University. Uh, in terms of my practical experience, I've worked with a variety of different sports, right from grassroots athletes through to elite and Olympic level athletes. Um, and specifically, my research background has predominantly focused on agility performance and really trying to understand and quantify the various underlying mechanisms and constraints that both enable a faster performance to be achieved um, and also a reduction in injury incidence.
1: Interesting, and you've found yourself in a different environment recently.
0: Yeah, so recent, yeah, so a little bit different. Recently, um, I've found myself in a bit of a, I guess, FIFO type role. So, for those who don't know what FIFO is, it's fly in, fly out workforce um, working with our. Um, employers that work remotely, so in mine sites or construction sites around Western Australia, uh, promoting health um, and well-being uh, kind of messaging and also really that um, assessment of psychosocial well-being in the workforce.
1: So is this part of your role at UTS or is this something separate?
0: Yeah, this is something... Totally separate. So a bit left of um, center there, but um, the research element definitely links in with um, what I'm doing at, at UTS. Yeah.
1: Cool. Cool. And the reason I wanted to well, the, the reason I wanted to get you on was is an obvious one because of your expertise in this particular area. But you contributed to a book recently as well. Is it Paul Jones and Tom DeSantos, the, the editors around this this general area?
0: Yeah, so contributed to the book chapter. I can't quite remember what the damn chapter is, but yes, um, yeah, agility, um, decision making um, for agility performance. I believe something like that. <laughs> but yes,
1: yeah, I'm sure. Nice, nice, and most importantly, you got your authors. You got your authors' copy, contributors' copy. So that's the that's the main thing. But Tanya, let, let's start off. Yeah, exactly. With the, what would seem like what would seem like a simple place to start, but will be more complex than, than um, what it seems. What is agility? Let's, let's get that out there straight away.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, agility and change of direction have typically in the past been used quite interchangeably. However, I definitely feel like we as researchers and practitioners have gotten significantly better at differentiating between the two. Um, so I guess... Before I start what agility is, I'll I'll go back and kind of define change of direction ability because that's a good starting point. Um, So, change of direction should be used to describe the action of actually physically changing movement direction. So, when we aim to quantify an athlete's ability to change direction, we're actually assessing their physical capacity to do so. So, looking at things like uh, their speed, strength, power, and mobility to enter a more optimal body position to change direction. And when we assess this, we're using pre-planned drills. So think your T-test, a 505, um, or in a real-life setting, picture a football athlete practicing running different routes in training. Um, These tests or scenarios allow you to assess an athlete's physical and technical capacity to change direction without that decision-making element. Uh, when we look at agility, that decision making element is key because when you incorporate that, that's what you're describing. You're describing agility, which is the combination of the technical ability to change direction and an athlete's decision making capacity. Um, so, as it's been defined in the literature, which I'm sure uh, you all know, it's the change in velocity or direction in response to a stimulus. So, in sport, A stimulus is often another opponent uh, which requires athletes to use their perceptual, cognitive ability, technical and physical ability to identify and respond to changes presented to them either within the task itself or their environment. So in simple terms, agility is a constant interaction or feedback loop between perception and action. So that's constantly occurring throughout a game or throughout a match. Um, So for example, if we take that football athlete running those same routes that he did in practice, it will look different to when he runs those in a game because he's faced with now defenders, other players on the field, which changes spacing requirements and different environmental conditions. And that's what we would now call an agility movement.
1: I don't know if you've come across this or I'm guessing you have because you're very much on the ground when it comes to this topic. There seems to be a lot of... Mm, not hate i won't put i won't say the, the h word but a lot of um misunderstandings are moving away from what testing change direction is uh, i spoke to a couple of people and these kind of pre-planned um testing batteries when it comes to change direction have kind of taken a little bit of a turn to been slightly unpopular why do you do you see that as well tanya or is that something that i'm just seeing if so why do you think that is
0: Yeah, I definitely feel like there's been more of a shift. And that's probably because now we're becoming more aware of um, the differentiation between change direction agility. So people are really trying to train and assess agility. So they're moving away from those traditional tests that we would use to assess change direction ability. However, I do think they still have their place, particularly in a field-based setting. If we want to know if an athlete has made improvements in their ability to actually physically change direction, which has a part, plays a huge part in agility performance, the best way to assess those um, is through, you know, your typical standard change direction test. But we've got to be careful in the selection and pick the right test for the right sport. So for example, in basketball, you wouldn't run the Illinois agility test because that's a pointless test, right? That's more how people would classify as maneuverability. It's not actually assessing that change direction capacity. You'd pick something more like a T-test or a 505 test where you can clearly break down those components between approach speed, the athlete's actual capacity to change direction, and then their approach speed out after changing direction and decelerating. So you can get a better understanding of their physical capacity to change direction. So I think it's more about not dismissing those tests as a whole, but being more selective and pick the right tests for the demands of the sport that you're training your
1: athletes. I know you've given us a little bit of an example there for basketball and maybe what you shouldn't do in terms of picking a particular test, but is there a procedure that you would go through or would you encourage other coaches to go through to to get the test that, that is most appropriate for their sport?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess looking at the sport as a whole, so, you know, energy systems that are being used, the amount of, um, you know, the field size, for example, and, you know, positional requirements for each um, athlete on the field, take a look and do a movement analysis or a video analysis and have a look at the common movement patterns that emerge in competition and then fit that with the most appropriate test from a testing battery. Uh, And that's where you're going to get your biggest bang for your buck for actually assessing how an athlete changes direction and then how it would most link to their ability to do so in a a game or a match.
1: Is this sometimes a a problem when people are using change direction tests or maybe this is something in the past and that's why people are moving away from it and inferring things over and above what the test is actually telling us in terms of using the change direction test but moving into that assumption that that is becoming more agility versus change direction
0: yeah so i think in the past the naming of some of those tests as well was also confusing so the illinois agility test for example that is definitely not an agility test that's more a change of direction or maneuverability test, but it also overcomplicates things with, you know, taking that one for an example, with the level of straight line running and and sprinting in between all these weavings in and out of a cone. And all you're getting is total time. What are you actually assessing there with that test? You know, you can't break it down to understand, okay, well, this was the athlete's approach speed. This was their you know, their speed taken to perform the change direction test and then their approach speed afterwards, you can't break that down in a test like the Illinois Agility Test and therefore it's confusing because agility is in the name. So I think that's where we initially went wrong and there was a lot of confusion. Um, But I think if you're selecting, you know, your change direction tests and one of the ones that keep coming up because it's appeared quite a lot in the literature recently with the ability to actually – you know, quantify that change direction component is that 505 test. You can assess the approach speed in um, whether an athlete decelerates or maintains their same speed into the directional change. The 505 being such, you know, a quite sharp directional change requiring a lot of deceleration ability and then re-acceleration ability to get out of that, you can actually break the test down into its components to assess, you know, their reacceleration their approach speed, their deacceleration, and that change direction component. So you're getting a lot more information from that one test um, than you would some of the others out there.
1: Right, so my next question was going to actually be around change direction injury risk. So if people are moving away from the performance element of change direction testing or trying to make that a bit more uh, relevant to their actual sport versus just taking a, random Illinois agility test or whatever it is. Are change direction tests becoming more prevalent when it comes to assessing that injury risk? I'm just thinking of Tom DeSantis' work and a few other people who are utilizing video as well to to incorporate into that and try to understand a bit deeper into um, what is potentially going to contribute to injury.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, change direction tests definitely have a place um, in terms of Uh, the reassessing phase, so in the rehab phase after an injury, to see how um, people's movement competencies have progressed from their injury state. So are they able to, you know, enter a more favorable um, kinematic position um, to reduce that level of injury incidence? Um, So traditional change direction tests definitely have their place in the initial stage. Of, I guess, rehab. And then it's important to um, test them under changing situations, which becomes more of an agility movement before re entering them back into competition. So we know that, um, you know, and there's a lot of people doing research in this area. Um, I've touched on it a little bit, but we know that as soon as you expose athletes to that decision making, element, it changes your kinetics, your kinematics, and your muscle activation strategies. So it's really important to, while you want to assess movement competency during that initial rehab phase, it's really important to put an athlete into situations where they have to use that decision-making element because we know from the research that that does alter those underlying mechanisms needed um, to effectively get your body prepared for that upcoming directional change. So if you're able to identify things sooner within your um, your environment, um, you're able to prepare the body sooner, get those muscles pre-activated so that you can enter a more favorable kinematic position, apply force appropriately in the correct direction and perform that directional change. Um, so it's important to have that progression during that rehab kind of stages, I guess.
1: So if, if you're right, right, we'll stay here for a little bit because I think this is this is really interesting. So at what point, and I know this is like super general, but how <laughs> can practitioners understand when to start to introduce that variability within the testing versus just sticking to the pre-planned change direction test?
0: Yeah, well, I guess um, outside of a rehab setting, if you're thinking even more novice athletes, right, playing their sport, they're exposed to that decision-making element. So when they go play their sport on the weekends and, and whatever, they have to use that decision-making element. So there's no escaping it really anywhere. Um, so I think it's still important to, while we want to emphasize the fundamentals during this stage and really emphasize great movement competency and you know developing their strength, their power, their speed, um, we still need to incorporate that decision-making element and that training, um, I guess, that uncertainty into their training, but make it more of a controlled, reactive kind of environment. Um, by that, I mean reducing the number of options they have presented to them, which reduces the amount of cognitive load that they're exposed to, so that they still um, they're still presented with you know choices that they have to make. But it's in a controlled situation where this emphasis is still, you know, developing that movement competency and exploring uh, the degrees of freedom of the movement um, to formulate an adaptive movement response to those controlled, I guess, um, reactive environments.
1: And that would be very similar when it comes to the, the rehab as well.
0: Yeah, I think from a rehab standpoint, you've definitely got to make sure that, you know, strength. Um, and power and all that have developed back up to what the appropriate level for that athlete was, test and understand their ability to, you know, move in a controlled situation under varying loads and and different types of movement situations. And then at the last point it would be, you know, introducing that decision-making element prior to then them going back into the sporting environment. So it's more of a staggered approach to obviously prevent re-injury and making sure that the athlete's ready to um, encounter those um, those loads.
1: Perfect. Right, going back to the list that I, I sent over to you because we have gone off pace, which is absolutely fine and I absolutely love it. So constraints influencing an individual's agility performance, and this is probably a, a big one, but I'd love to get your your take on it.
0: Yeah, so um, as we know, agility involves a kind of cyclical relationship between that perception and action. So I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, So what this basically means is it's really important for an athlete to rapidly recognize relevant stimuli or cues from their environment and formulate an adaptive movement response. Um, so, when we're looking at the constraints that impact an athlete's agility performance, and we use and we look at this through the lens of ecological dynamics, we must consider um, the athlete themselves or the organism, um, task and environmental factors. So, if we break that down, the organism is the athlete's physical capacity, so their strength, speed, power, anthropometrics, which we all know have an influence in their ability to change direction. Uh, Their perceptual cognitive ability, so reaction time, vision, prior knowledge of a situation, so have you faced this opponent before, Um, their level of playing experience as well, and then we've got their technical capacity, um, which as I mentioned before, is directly influenced by both an athlete's physical and perceptual cognitive ability. Um, if we then look at the task, we're more referring to uh, the number of players on the field, the field size and shape. So we know across different sports, we can get you know variations in the shape of the field, the um, speed of movement. Is there any object manipulation involved? So are they dribbling a basketball or a soccer ball or holding a football? As we know that that adds another cognitive um, demand to the action itself if they have to, you know, also perform an agility movement while dribbling a basketball. And then if we're looking at environmental factors, these are external distractions. So the crowd size, playing surface, weather conditions, as we all know have an influence on agility performance. So if we take a basketball, for example, they may reduce their approach speed for an upcoming Agility movement based on their physical capacity, so their their strength, um, and specific task and environmental constraints. So, uh, how many defenders are in the area? What required angle directional changes? Is it a really sharp angle of directional change, more like a like a in and out cut into the ring, which therefore requires them to slow down because they don't have enough strength capacity to handle that deceleration and then the level of uh, the playing surface, so is it indoor or outdoor. So these are the things that they're considering in the moment which then shapes their movement output and what movement that they feel comfortable to perform and that will differentiate between all players. In that same situation, every player will have a different response based on these factors. So when we're looking at it, it's not looking at the isolated action of just agility in itself, but thinking of agility in the context in which it's performed. And I think that's important and that's what these constraints refer to.
1: So just going back to the the, the testing side of things, is there any, how how can we isolate those different kind of verticals that make up this agility performance, good, bad or indifferent? How How can we, can we do that? Is that possible?
0: Yeah, so we can do that and it's, um, you know, to maximize that from training to competition, it's really important to sample those aspects from the competitive environment. So sampling what, you know, task constraints and environmental constraints that the athlete might be exposed to to create what we like to call a representative learning environment. Um, so this allows an athlete to engage and experience emergent Performance solutions um, in response to the constraints that they would encounter in competition or on a field, but in a you know, nice controlled, safe um, setting. So, as we know, context shapes content. So for agility, for example, it's you know, like I said, thinking about the number of moving bodies on the field, the gaps in emergent play, weather conditions, even the time of the games and the match, as this will shape. You know, it can shape the speed, degree, directional change, and the specific agility movement that the athlete performs based on the information they perceive from their environment. So, yeah, so that's that's broadly um, what we kind of need to consider to really get those constraints um, into a kind of training drill.
1: So we're going to get a very quick break in the chat with Tanya, hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around building drills from the bottom up. So running through a couple of examples of how to build a drill from a movement orientated to incorporating this perceptual cognitive aspect to improving agility. Then we've actually finish off with a little chat around uh, ladders, agility ladders. And I'll leave that one for you to decide how that goes. So really interesting part two coming up with Tanya. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. TeamBuilder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with TeamBuilder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyse data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Tanya. Let's take it into them training drills because I mean you'll have seen them just like just like I have on social media when it, it it comes to the the creation of of drills that are trying to be representative of the of the game. And there was one particular one that we featured in an article a couple of months ago, and it was uh, I think it was an NFL team. And not to bash on anyone because people put things out for, for for whatever reason, but it was a guy holding a helmet on the end of a stick. And as the player ran through a, a number of uh, obstacles, the the stick was waved at the guy, and he was like palming it away as if it was a, as if it was a real person, which I absolutely and was- loved, and I've I've watched it numerous times yeah, just yeah. to get a, a little bit of a laugh because it is um it's wild. Yeah. But is there any things not not to use that example? But is there any things that maybe people think that they are that they are making a representative drill when actually they're not? Is there anything we need to really consider to not end up on social media and then talked about on a podcast?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you always find some stuff that people put online, it's just, yeah, it's great, like good on them. Um, I think when we're looking at drills, we we tend to really overcomplicate it, right? Like 100%. Um, So... I think the easiest way is to link it back to traditional methods of physical preparation. Um, so how we would develop an athlete for, you know, um strength and, and power and and all that stuff in the weight room, we can apply those same principles to agility and and decision making. Um, by that I mean progressive overload, specificity and variation. So they're all they're the three terms that you know we're all pretty familiar with. So I think if we revert back to that um and then base drills and progress them on the level of the athlete, we're at a good starting point. So If we're considering training load, for example, um, in this case, it's cognitive demand, right? Um, We want to vary the strength, so the intensity of the load, so how much we're throwing an athlete in a drill, uh, the duration of the drill, so the length of the drill or training session itself, um, and the frequency, so the number of repetitions of the drill. Varying those will vary that cognitive load that the athlete experiences, and that's what we want to try and do. We don't want to overload them too much. We want to load them just enough so they're able to adapt and, and, and grow without getting fatigued from doing the training drill. Um, we need to vary this because we know as cognitive load or demand increases, performance decreases. Um, or, if an athlete is a novice athlete and we're throwing too much at them, um, they're not ready to sustain the load. And that's when, you know, I- injuries can happen, but also um, we see breakdowns in movements and, and just it gets into a bit of a shamble. Um, so, for example, if we have a novice level athlete, the cognitive demand should be quite low. So, like I said before, we still need to incorporate that perceptual cognitive element because they face that when they go to their games on the weekend. Um, however it could be in the form of a non-specific stimulus so things like a voice light signal or a hand signal at this stage or you know instructing athletes to run to a different colored cone for example still requires that um, perceptual cognitive ability to recognize that cue in their space um, but then allows them to you know, execute that movement in response. So it's a real controlled setting um, but still exposes them to that perceptual cognitive ability. If we move on and consider training variation, uh, we're looking at the training intensity, uh, exercise or drill selection and the speed of movement. And we achieve those. This is where we achieve it by manipulating the task or environmental constraints. So this allows... Repetition without repetition, Um, so it allows athletes to engage in movement exploration um, in training, so that they feel confident that they can, you know, perform those same movements as they would in competition because they've done it before in a training environment. So they understand they have the ability and physical capacity to do so. So they're more likely to feel more confident doing that in a competitive environment. So an example there is, you know, creating. A variation in movement output by introducing a more sport-specific stimulus um, like another defender or drills requiring object manipulation, so dribbling a hockey ball or a soccer ball, for example. Um, so this increases that cognitive load in the drill in itself just by adding that addition of the object manipulation, um, but allows athletes to um, explore movement output under that higher cognitive load. So depending on the level of the athlete, movements in this phase might appear more messy. Um, However, that's just them going through the process of understanding, okay, well, I presented with this now, how can I adapt my movement more appropriately in response? So it'll start messy, but it should progress to something that's a bit more controlled and and coordinated. Um, And then finally, if we look at specificity, We need to consider both mechanical specificity, so specificity of the movement patterns, and also perceptual cognitive, so um, how specific the stimulus is in relation to their competitive environment to allow for maximal transfer to to occur. So when we're looking at movement patterns, um, like I mentioned before with the change direction test, you want to get athletes to perform similar movement patterns that they would in a game. Right, and then link that to a sport-specific stimulus, where in this case it's often a defender. Uh, you can add a time pressure or reduce the field size um, of the drill, which makes them um, be required to make more, I guess, more obvious directional changes in the drill, um, and it requires them to actively search for kinematic cues from their opposition. Um, so that requires athletes to engage in constant perception action coupling, which is that feedback loop I spoke about before, um, which really adds that that level of specificity that, you know, we need to see that transfer to, to competition.
1: One thing I'd like to ask you is when when we're talking about these kind of drills, it always and this is my bias because I'm a I'm a defender or was a defender. It always feels like it's like a, a, a we we look at it in attacking scenarios, but how different should it be for the those defenders who are learning these kind of things and developing in these kind of areas?
0: Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. I was definitely better at defending than I was attacking. Um, playing basketball back in the day, um, and I never understood why I couldn't see things in a play that you know another athlete could. I was always better. at at reading from the reverse and I guess it's what you're familiar with. And and it's funny, it's why I did some research looking at differences and I called it offensive and defensive agility movements Um, and looking at differences, you know, in kinetics, kinematics and your muscle activation strategies between the two. And there actually is um, a bit of a difference but more in the level of perception of – someone's reaction time between the two scenarios. Um, So I guess if you're more defensively minded, um, you're still picking up those same cues from an opposition as in, you know, their proximal body cues. So their hips, their torso, things like that to be able to predict movement direction where I guess in an attacking situation, you're reading not only your opposition, but also looking for those gaps in the play and seeing what other people on the field are doing, so it requires more of a broad, I guess visual search field where defensive it's quite narrow because you're fixating on your your opponents. That would be the main difference um, between the two. And I guess in a lot of these drills, if you start with like you know your one on ones or your one on twos, you can really focus on those you know searching for cues from your opposition, which may, benefit more your defensive ability Um, whereas if you get into your more small sided games and things like that that's when you're having to look for those gaps in the play be aware of you know other teammates and opponents positionings on the field in terms of what move you will make next
1: you mentioned the chaotic or certainly the start the chaotic nature of how these drills may play out and i think that and this is just from personal experience from from myself and, and speaking to so that makes coaches quite nervous because it may be perceived as being chaotic from another coach or from a, a head coach or a, a manager or a physio. So we want to kind of constrain it so it looks nice and neat. But this is completely opposite. It needs to be chaotic because that's the, the nature of what happens in a game. Do you think that's what maybe holds it back a little bit or holds certain coaches back for introducing this because they've been comfortable at being... Very well. Very chaotic at the start, and and slightly chaotic as people get better.
0: Yeah, I think we definitely all like nice, neat drills that look pretty. Um, however, you know, as you mentioned, it is chaotic in nature, particularly as you're learning and developing. It's never going to be, you know, a nice, neat little package that you can put a bow on top of, right? We want to allow, like in our training environments, it's a safe space for athletes, right? So we want them to have that opportunity to explore and, and develop and, you know hone in those perceptual cognitive or decision-making skills, couple that with, you know, exploring movement output and what they have the ability to perform. Um in that safe training space so that when it does come to competition, they know that they have the capacity to do so. So if we're constantly controlling it and keeping it nice and neat, we're only really training athletes to perform a test or a drill. And so they get familiar in that confined, I guess, space is one way of calling it. Um, or if we let an athlete explore and, and develop in that kind of chaotic um, setting, it will transfer better to to competition. So you're not only adapting them for that drill or that one scenario; um, they're then more adapted to a wide variety of situations that they can encounter in competition.
1: What I'd love to do at this point is get maybe one example or a couple of examples, and you've given some really good ones, of moving from a more movement orientated drill to the perform um, perception action coupling side of things, and how you you may go from one to the next and maybe give listeners a a bit of an idea of how they could kind of formulate that and manage that and, and create that themselves?
0: Yeah. So if we're looking at, you know, starting off with a novice level athlete, right? We want that, you know, cognitive load to be relatively low and the emphasis to be on movement competency, right? Um but we still want to expose them to an appropriate level of, you know, decision making element to expand and develop their agility performance. So, in this stage, an example of an initial drill might be, you know, getting a couple of colored cones out on the field or on the court, whatever sport your athlete might be playing. And associate each colored cone with a different movement pattern. So it could be a back pedal, a side shuffle, a 45-degree directional change. And you get an athlete to run up and approach, and they can approach at different approach speeds. You could vary that, which also varies the level of um, intensity required to decelerate. And then call out a colored cone. So now they're having to look and scan for the colored cone in their visual field, um, Continue to that cone and then associate that and couple that with the movement output that was assigned to it. So that's developing that initial perception action coupling and reinforces that notion um, in a controlled setting. So you're still giving them that variability. You can still vary the pace of the drill by varying the um, approach speed or, you know, even the degrees of directional change that you're getting them to perform at each cone but it's emphasizing that initial perception-action coupling that we want to get to in that stage. Um, As we progress up, you know, if we have, um, you know, our elite-level athletes, even though we want to emphasize that development of perception-action coupling and their agility performance, we still need to obviously emphasize those fundamentals as well, but obviously they can – tolerate a higher cognitive load in this phase. Um, So, for example, creating, you know, your two-on-one or your one-on-one drills, um, varying either the time of the drill, so how long they take to execute that drill, or confining the space um, that they have to move in really heightens that cognitive load and also requires them to perform a few different directional changes um, that might not fit the norm, but they're you know able to explore within their movement adaptability, which is what we're trying to emphasize in this space with that time constraint as well, or that space constraint. Um, so it really allows them to explore um, that movement output in that space with that under that higher cognitive load um, to get the best transfer um, to evaluate performance in competition.
1: This is a big question for you now, Tanya. I think it's going back to the <clears throat> my experience, having just myself but other people as well, of wanting to tr- assess everything and, and test everything and, and get a number to everything. How going through the progressions, like you just mentioned there, with a, with a particular athlete or a particular team, apart from watching the game and it being a very subjective, maybe that's that, that is the answer. Is there any way that could put coaches at ease that we can maybe objectify improvements in these particular areas as we move through that continuum, that progression continuum?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it is really quite hard when we're wanting to test um, agility in the field. So we know that, you know, we're very lucky in a lab based setting. We have all the tools and technology and, and fancy things that allow us to quantify it. Um, but it's still not necessarily reflective of how an athlete's going to perform in a game. Um, so I guess, you know, to put a number to it, it's important to break agility down into its components. So we still want to assess, you know, um, those physical elements and the physical capabilities that contribute to agility performance. So your strength, your power, your speed, um, also use, you know, your appropriate change direction and tests to assess an athlete's ability to effectively change direction. Um, so, looking at their physical attributes, their, their change direction ability. And then when it comes to agility, it is it is really quite difficult to measure in a game. People have used GPS and things like that to try and get an understanding of, of spacing and, and all that on the field. Um, also, looking at game stats in terms of numbers of possessions, turnovers, things like that. But it still doesn't give you an accurate representation of agility in the field. Um, the only way that you can get a good understanding, and it's not putting a number to it, but is speaking with your positional coaches or your coaches, um, you know, that, that look after the tactical elements um, of sport because they're going to have a good understanding of, you know, improvements in that they've seen in the athletes um, in competition or whether there may be areas for improvement um, that is required. So having a really good relationship with those um, technical coaches is going to be able to give you a good understanding of how an athlete is performing in competition. But if you know they've got, you know, their physical attributes are improving, they're, you know, performing better in your appropriate change direction of tests and you're actually assessing that change direction ability appropriately. It's then looking at, you know, that feedback from positional coaches and, you know, video playback as well, getting an athlete to to look at that, to understand areas of opportunity where they could improve um, or, you know, where they actually have improved and go in both, both ways there. So, it's really hard to put, I wish I had the answer for it, but <laughs> it's really hard to put a, um, an actual number to, or how we quantify agility performance in competition because it is so dynamic and and very situational specific.
1: Two things that I want to ask you before, before I let you go, the non-specific signals. So we, again, just referring to what you see online, um, light like walls and things like that, that are build as I don't know reaction time and that built into agility and all these kind of things in terms of that in a more global sense the non-specific signals once you get to a certain point is that something that we should be moving away from is that something that should be kind of confined to youth and, and novice athletes
0: yeah, I think those, and I know what ones you're talking about, they're like lights on a board or, or things like that. They're very, very non-specific, and don't actually have a movement associated or a movement output associated with it other than pressing a button with your hand or your foot. Um, they're more of a novelty, I guess, to assess um, your initial reaction time and reaction speed. And while that has a place, as You know, It's probably okay with your novice athletes, a bit of fun um, and things like that to get them to understand that initial reaction. Um, But as you get up through the levels of sport, it's really more just a novelty because the important thing is with agility and and decision-making in sport, it's that constant relationship between perception and action. So while it's great to have a fast reaction time, you need to be able to couple that with movement output. And often, if you're in competition, you've seen a stimulus or you've seen, you know, taken information from various tasks and environmental constraints that are presented from you. You've then made a quick decision and produced a response. So that initial reaction of seeing a light, it's non-specific. So it's not going to be relevant. It's not going to have a lot of transfer to your sport. And it also doesn't couple it with appropriate movement output. So you're not going to get that transfer. That is desired into from training to competition it's just going to be a novelty where an athlete gets better at the test because they've done the test so many times
1: and my last question for you and you're you know that you're working in a particular area that has a, a piece of equipment that has generated more twitter conversations and angry coaches than anything else and that's the that's the agility ladder and i think it's been we've gone over this a million times i know but i still i still do see yeah but or yeah i know that but we could do this with it what's your general feeling when it comes to i know speed and agility ladder and its use at all within anything we've just spoke about over the last 45 minutes
0: Yeah. So, I mean, look, I'm not going to completely diss on the agility ladder. Like I definitely think it has a place maybe in, you know, with your novice athletes and in a warm up scenario where, you know, you're just putting athletes to their paces, getting them kind of switched on for the main drills that you're going to get them to perform. So, you know, those fast feats, ins and outs, it's kind of warming their body up. Um, getting them to switch on cognitively getting their body to you know move Um, but in terms of you know developing an athlete's agility performance and getting that transfer from training to competition it doesn't really hold a space um, in that aspect so definitely useful for you know novice athletes bit of fun um, in your your warm-up and things like that but in terms of developing agility performance um just because agility is in its name uh, doesn't mean it actually is going to help develop that particular skill unfortunately
1: (laughs) perfect perfect put to bed put to bed right tanya thank you very much for coming on i really appreciate it. anyone that wants to dive into any of the work that you've done this particular area or any other area where's the best place people to go
0: uh, so they can go to my research gate or my LinkedIn. That'd be the best place to go.
1: Okay, perfect. And LinkedIn is just your name, nothing outlandish to get access yep, to Yeah, nothing LinkedIn. fancy,
0: just my name. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Excellent. Right, Tanya, I'm going to let you go and look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you very much for coming on. Good luck with everything you're doing, both in this space and, uh, and otherwise. We discussed at the start and um, we'll chat soon.
0: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for tuning in to episode 468 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to get Tanya on to this episode and chat around, probably a under-discussed area especially when it comes to agility training so a really pleasure to get her on also big thanks to team builder to play and viled for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run its current form without these guys so i really do appreciate all their support big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time